Good morning. Good morning. It is good to be back after uh, what Brother John referred to as my sabbatical of uh, three Sundays, which I think aside from extended times on the mission field, I haven't not been in church for three Sundays, so the Lord hears my repentant heart. Welcome to Advent, and our series of sermons through this Advent season is entitled Unexpected Jesus. Unexpected Jesus. Now, I think one of the things that we need to get out of the way right up front here is that a lot of us in the room did not grow up in historic Christian communions. So many of us were not raised Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and even though it's not quite that old, uh, Anglican traditions. And for a lot of us, the Christian calendar, the extent of my awareness of Advent for most of my life was a literal calendar. And if I was lucky, there might be chocolate inside of it. You know what calendar I'm talking about, right? right? It was like, and of course it had a wonderful Christmas scene on the Advent calendar, because that's how you roll. And uh, eight years ago, this is the eighth year that I have consciously and very intentionally celebrated, observed Advent. And I do think celebrate is the appropriate language for Advent, but I've celebrated in what I like to call a growing consciousness of Advent because I didn't have the luxury of being raised or the benefit of being raised in that sort of environment. And what I've come to understand over the last eight years is that even in those great traditions, there's not always consensus as to what everybody's supposed to be doing right now. And so I'd like to submit at the outset that if some of the things that I say or some of the things that you hear over the course of the next month or so, if they say, well, that's not what I was told, let's be a little bit open-minded here and let's explore together because the fact of the matter is none of us in the room is an expert. Now, you may be very disappointed because you thought I might have been, but let me tell you, none of us in the room is an expert. I would say if there's... Uh, an extended quote I love, it's from Karl Barth. Now, if you're not familiar with Karl Barth, he is arguably the most important theologian, certainly the most important Protestant theologian of the 20th century. Probably, I think we can say with a lot of confidence, the most prolific uh, theologian of the 20th century. There's a statement, a statement that says they don't think anybody alive or dead has read everything that Karl Barth has written, including Karl Barth. That's how much work this man did. I want you to listen to this at the beginning of Advent, just to adjust and calibrate our minds here. This is what he says. The invocation, our Father, and all the Christian life and ethos implicit in this invocation can never at any stage or in any form be anything but the work of beginners. What Christians do becomes a self-contradiction when it takes the form of a trained and mastered routine of a learned and practiced art. They may and can be masters and even virtuosos in many things, but never in what makes them Christians, God's children. And so with that in mind, I invite us to be open-minded and learning 
this Advent season? Because my understanding of Advent is changing. And sometimes it's frustrating. If you want to be in a church that does the same old, same old, and you can predict every sermon and every song and every move, this is probably not the church for you. And everybody in sanctuary said, amen. And say, oh God, what is coming? He is setting us up for something awful. I'm not, don't worry, I'm not. It's just I, when I was coming into Advent and studying Advent and learning Advent, I was coming across these ideas. And listen, if you're an uh, like a, a old school Catholic or something, don't make a smug face, okay? Because we're not experts. We just said we're not experts. So, no. But I came into this idea that Advent was like pretend season, where we pretend Jesus hasn't come, and we anticipate His coming. And our, our lives would be dark without the light of Christ in it, and so on and so forth. And I commend, I mean, God has brought blessing into my life through that, and uh, I'm not here to necessarily tear that all apart. But one of the ideas that I came into this year is that Advent is not pre-gaming for Christmas. I'll let that sit with you for a minute. In other words, Advent isn't like the first course to get us ready for Christmas, although it gets us ready for Christmas. There's no doubt about it. It bumps right up against Christmas. But I would say this, rather than thinking of Advent and Christmas as twins, I mean, technically one twin is older than the other twin, it's probably better for us to think of Advent and Christmas as cousins, maybe. Because Advent has a very distinct work it needs to do in our hearts. Advent has a very distinct purpose. Advent is its own season. It's not pre-Christmas. It is its own season. And it's not so much about preparation as much as it's a season of recalibration, reminding us that the essence of the Christian life, are you ready for, this is not going to be a shouting moment for you. The essence of the Christian life is one of waiting in holy expectation. In other words, let me put it to you this way. If every Sunday is a mini Easter, Advent is a microcosm of the Christian life, of what we experience until death or the return of the Lord. That's what Advent is. So as we enter into Advent, we have the opportunity to hit reset and ask ourselves the question with the Holy Spirit, am I waiting well? Am I an expectant, faithful follower of Jesus looking for his return? Today's Psalm is Psalm 25. And in Psalm 25, you'll hear things like, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. You'll hear, for I wait for you all the day long. Now, I understand that there's been a lot of kooky teaching. Certainly, if you're a Pentecostal charismatic like me, there's been a lot of strange teaching over the years about the coming of Jesus. A lot of scary things. I remember, did anybody remember those movies from the 70s? I own them on DVD. I do. I've actually shared them with friends. They've make it, made a circuit around the nation. Because Thief in the Night, Distant Thunder, that's my joint right there. Those are my movies. And Unite, of course, was supposed to be the United Nations, and it was terrifying to everybody. Um, 
and you'd get these tattoos on your hand or on your forehead that literally said 666, and you'd walk around scared to death if you didn't have the tattoo because somebody might see you, and you, they had like head chopping scenes. We showed this in church on Sunday night. It was awesome. It was the best. You want to toughen your kids up, send them to church on Sunday night to watch a beheading. It's awesome. It's very tongue-in-cheek, and Brent is very nervous right now. He's like, gosh, why is he doing this? Well, what happens is some of us came up in this, and we heard that there was some guy in Belgium. We don't know if he's a guy or a supercomputer, but he's going to take the world over, known as the Antichrist. And he's going to have like a prophet. And we heard all these things. And Russia was Gog and Magog. And all the, we heard all of these things. And I'm guessing there might be somebody in the room. If you're still holding on to all of that, I love you. And please just forget I said any of that. But there might be somebody in the room who just doesn't want to think about the second coming of Jesus because that's all you've heard. And here's the problem. What it means to be a Christian is to be expecting the return of Jesus. And I'm not talking about just his coming. There are three comings of the Lord. There is the coming of Christ in Mary. There is the coming of Christ at the end of human history and of all times. And in between, there is the coming of Christ in us at the table in his church by the Spirit. We're okay with the first coming, And clearly here at Sanctuary, we're all really good with Jesus Christ coming to us at the table of the Lord. But it's that second coming that gets everybody nervous. You start thinking about Israel and red heifers and the temple and what's going on. And we're going to spend the next month talking about the second coming. (sighs) Guess what? Because that's what the scriptures are reading. That's the scriptures we're given to talk about. Lift up your heads. Any 70s Christians in the room might want to finish this with the actual song because redemption draweth nigh. Everybody else is like, this guy is older than we realize right now. But I'm thinking if you once a week look at a news headline, you're brave, but you're also probably aware of the fact that if there ever was a time for us to recover a healthy sense of longing for the return of Jesus, it's now. When we read this text, the one that we all heard together, about distress of nations in perplexity, even so come Lord Jesus. This Christian life of waiting See, if we choose to ignore the headlines, if we choose to ignore the idea of the second coming, we can just keep plodding along in our lives. And if we think that somehow Jesus was supposed to fix everything, this is a very exasperating season for us. The essence of the Christian life, it's it's living in the in-between. Not the upside down, the in-between. Right? We're living in this time of now and not yet. We're living in this time where Jesus tells us the kingdom of God is within you, but yet teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come. Jesus, which one is it? And the answer is yes. Exactly. 
This is why Advent is so important to us because it recalibrates us to the now and the not yet. It resets this thing in our hearts that says there has to be more than what we know. We're glad for what we know. We're glad for what we have, but we need more. We're waiting for more. To be a Christian faithfully. To be a Christian faithfully. Not every, you can be a Christian and not be a Christian faithfully. You can be a Christian culturally. You can be a Christian selfishly. You can be a Christian mindlessly. But if you want to be a Christian faithfully, we have to live honestly between this tension. It requires that we have some boldness, that we can confess our faith in a living God despite the evil that's in the world. Our greatest theologians would say this. If there's any reason to not be a Christian, it's the existence of evil. Do you realize the people who talk about and think about God the most are the closest to not believing in him? Because the more you honestly look at the facts, the more you're willing to open up your eyes and actually look around, as Jesus said, at the fig tree and all the other trees. It's very hard to believe that God is alive and he's good and he's powerful in the face of all of this evil. And people a lot smarter than me, when they're asked, can you explain it? They just say, no, I can't. If there's ever a reason to be an atheist, here you go. I'm guessing you're in the room this morning because that's not a good option for you. I'm hoping that's why you're in the room this morning. In Luke, Jesus invites, we could even say he commands his disciples to start looking around. Not to deny, but not to despair. Don't deny that perplexity exists. Don't deny the fact that people are fainting for fear. Don't deny that. Look right at it. Look right at the issue. Look right at the problem. What is he doing? He's cultivating expectation in their hearts. When you look at the evil in the world, honestly, openly, boldly look at it you realize that despite our best efforts, which we should be making our best efforts, and everybody said, I try one more time on the first Sunday, everybody said, okay, you're off to a good start this year. We should be working for righteousness and justice in the earth. But we should not be deluded into thinking that our efforts are somehow going to fix it. The best our efforts can do is forecast it. Forecast a kingdom in which there's no more weeping, in which people are not fainting for fear, in which nations are led by kings who bring their gifts into Jerusalem, whose gates are never shut. That's what we're forecasting by our good works. We're not fixing this world by our good works. We have a problem, and that is for a lot of us, Jesus, frankly, is unexpected. He's unexpected because we're distracted. And I think there are at least two groups of people who are distracted. There are the people who are distracted because things are so good. Especially in America. A nation of abundance. Good things are the best distractions. Good marriages, good families, 
good jobs, good finances, good health, all of these things can lull us into a state of unhealthy complacency. You're not looking for Jesus to come back because you don't need Jesus to come back. The person who's so blessed, so comfortable, doesn't face me, their problems are like, should we lease a new car this year or just keep the one we have? I don't like the school that my kid is in, getting an education for free-ish. Right? These are not the people who are saying, even so, come Lord Jesus. Americans are the ones who say, just wait till I get my license. Hello, right? I, I prayed that prayer. <laughs> I get a little older, it's like, just please let me get married. Because we were holy and you had to be married. So please, I'm letting you all read between the lines. Brother Nate got it. Let me get married, Jesus. <laughs> Wasn't because I wanted to make an everlasting covenant, y'all. Please let me get married. <laughs> Don't come back just yet. These are American problems, but friends, if you're a mother of a starving child in Sudan, pardon the cliche, your prayers are a little bit different. Dr. House, when he was here, remember he talked about the types of songs we write? They reflect our situation. Now, sometimes that's just diverse and different and wonderful, and other times it's problematic because it dulls our senses. Jesus is unexpected in that instance. We don't really see people fainting for fear in our comfortable middle-class settings. But I think there's another group of people who might think Jesus is unexpected because those are people who are living in despair or anxiety because the world is so bad and they're simply tired of hearing that Jesus is coming back. They're tired of the church hiding behind the second coming. They're tired of the escapism, frankly, that permeates our preaching, our teaching, and our pulpits that's given us an excuse to do nothing for the world. And they're not expecting Jesus. They're expecting better returns at the voting booth. They're expecting better programs. They're expecting better something or another. But they're not necessarily expecting Jesus because they're so caught up in the real, pressing, legitimate anxieties of the world that Jesus calls perplexities. And maybe for that person, Jesus is also unexpected. And the fact is, it's too easy to get caught up in the good blessings of our lives. The good blessings that fill up our lives. They fill up our days, they fill up our calendars, and frankly, they fill up our imaginations. It's almost impossible to be expecting the return of Jesus if you live well in America. I'm going to take you back to a quote I've used. I'm sure I've used it here. I'm sure you've heard it, but as I just looked at it again, I thought, ouch, Mark. In the weight of glory, C.S. Lewis says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. It's good to read that once a year. 
It's good to feel the weight of the Holy Spirit pressing on my own heart as I look at things like that and say, Mark, when was the last time you sincerely prayed the prayer? Even so, come Lord Jesus. When was the last time you prayed it? Or are you so caught up in what you have to do in managing and administrating the blessings in your life? You're not really looking for Jesus to come back. And the converse of this is also true. We can be so caught up trying to right the injustices of the world, which we should be trying to do, by the way, that we forget the only way justice fully comes is when Jesus personally comes. Otherwise, we'd be saving ourselves. It's my sense as I look at it that Luke's text, as we heard it this morning, is not a detailed schema of past or future historical events. He's not trying to create some sort of a recipe for futuristic predictions. He's concerned with how a Christian should live. Alert, awake, sober, attentive expecting. Luke is trying to bring out not, well, the Antichrist lives in Belgium and he's part of, you know, whatever, the United Nations or whatever it would be. Ronald Wilson Reagan, 666, six letters in each of his names. I can go on and on. That's not what this text is about. This text is saying, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to be woke. You're going to be sober. You're going to be alert. And not just to the problems of the world. Think about it. What does he say? His words are, lift up your head, stand up straight and look around. His last word on the subject is not, it's a mess, yo. His last word is, your redemption is getting close. Maybe like the, the father of the prodigal who's looking down the roadway for his son. We can take a page out of that script and wake up in the morning and be looking for God's return. And immediately you start to go, ah, I've heard this language before. It fuels escapism. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. This is the heritage of the church. How many times do we read, especially in Paul's writings, that this is our blessed hope? When you're living on the margins, when you're living a persecuted life, when you walk into a marketplace in the first century of Corinth, and there's a throne in the marketplace, and on this throne sits the administrator of the Agora, and part of the understood nicety is that you will go and you'll greet the administrator of the agora and you'll tell him what a fine market he has and he will say to you welcome to our place of trade and we're so glad to have you here you'll notice we have a new altar here for god would you please just offer a pinch of incense before you go into the various stalls and you are a follower of jesus christ no gods before me. You know you're not supposed to be eating meat to offer to idols and that sort of thing. What do you do in that moment? Do you buy food for your family by dropping a little incense on the altar, or do you walk away shamed and marginalized? This is why they were saying, even so, come Lord Jesus. 
when we go into Walmart and swipe a card and walk back out and then spend all of our time figuring out how to manage our direct deposit to pay for the swipe. It's not the same thing. And it's nothing wrong with that. I'm not trying to guilt us to say, well, we should somehow make life harder than it is. I'm not saying that. I'm saying let's just be aware. Let's just be aware. We've got it really easy. And it's hard to preach about the second coming to people who have it easy unless I can preach more superficiality through the second coming. In other words, if I can say, oh, God's just going to scoop us out of here because the whole thing is going to burn up in intense heat and be consumed, and you're just going to be up in the clouds having church forever, then suddenly you get a bunch of hooping and hollering and amening. Don't got to go to work anymore. Don't have any responsibilities anymore. Right? Somebody's feeling it. I mean, the preaching was that the streets were paved with gold because you're going to be driving Ferraris on them. This is what makes this task so difficult, is preaching this sort of message to people who have heard all this mess. And to say, how can we faithfully be people of expectation and longing and wait well without falling into silliness and distraction? See, I think this is why Jesus told us to be watching, not only for signs, but watching ourselves. You see, I want this Advent season to be one in which my heart is revived, in which my heart is reset, so that I can live with a deep and genuine readiness, longing for the Lord's coming. Our reading from the New Testament today is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Starting in verse 9, the Apostle Paul says this, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith? Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. But look at this second request in verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Implication would be believers and outsiders. As we do for you. And what's the reason that he wants love to abound? Verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. Look at this at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. If you can flip to Luke 21, I want to draw your attention to verse 34. Jesus, after telling them to look around at the signs of the times, as we'd say, in verse 34, he says, but watch yourselves, not just the signs. Look at yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. I want to put together as we close here these two different texts that are really talking about the same thing. Because both Jesus and Paul are concerned about the condition of our hearts, specifically in relationship to the second coming of Jesus. And Jesus is concerned 
is in the negative and Paul's is in the positive. Jesus' concern is that our hearts would be weighed down basically with two different things. Dissipation and drunkenness. It actually, that word dissipation is amazing. It appears one time in your entire Bible and it talks about hangovers. It talks about being so sick with drunkenness that you're throwing up. I don't know where Luke was going with that, but drunkenness is excess, is excess on every level. And when he talks about your heart being weighed down, I love what it says in the King James. The King James says, be on guard lest your heart be overcharged. Has anybody in the room besides me ever been overcharged for something? It's an unpleasant experience, am I right? It's not pleasant, especially if you find out like days later you were overcharged for something. Like, oh my goodness, am I going to be able to get this back? How many of us came into this room today with, chart, with hearts that have been overcharged? Excess? And then look at this. Cares of life. The cares of life are the anxieties that come when we think that we can secure our own future. One of the things that will happen during this season, if it hasn't started already, is as we get ready for Christmas, we shop. Has anybody started shopping yet? Wave a hand. I saw one hand went up so fast. My God, my, that hand, I'm praying for the husband of the hand that went up right now because it went up like a revival back in that corner, remaining nameless. Has anybody started some Christmas shopping? Just wave a friendly wave, not a revival wave. Okay, now... We do these things in preparation. Of course, we're getting ready. But here's where things get a little bit ugly. Has anybody, when you're shopping, ever felt pressure to buy a certain kind of gift to produce a certain kind of response? Has any parent in the room ever felt the need to, quote unquote, make memories for their children at Christmas? Don't raise your hand, please. You know what I'm talking about? Has anybody ever seen that wonderful film National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I didn't call it a movie. I called it a film. It is cinema. We'll be having a viewing next Sunday night here. No, I'm just kidding. But what do we see there? What we see there is we see a desire to secure a certain kind of future for his family. What is the future? One that is filled with memories of this most incredible Christmas that he produced. If you're stressed out, if your heart is overcharged over the next four weeks, could it be that maybe you're trying to secure something for your children and your extended family that you can't possibly produce? And have you ever noticed this? Let's all reflect honestly together. The best memories we have oftentimes are the ones that we put the least planning into. And the ones that we try to control and we try to manufacture, they stress out and overcharge our hearts. And Jesus says, you cannot and you will not live in expectation of my coming. Your head will not be lifted up looking for my return if you're constantly trying to secure your own future with your own power and your own resources. And Paul comes out at the other, the other side of things and he says, we're praying for you that 
God would make your love for one another abound and increase so much because we know if the love that you have for one another just bursts forth, here's what's going to happen. It's going to establish your hearts. It's not going to overcharge your hearts. It's going to make them firm. It's going to set them clear. And specifically, the language is anticipating an assault or attack. You're still going to be standing. You're established. Your heart will be established And I love this phrase. So that at the coming of Jesus Christ, your heart will be blameless in holiness. And this is where the church helps us in this season. This context, the people in this room with you this morning, these are the people you may not even know their names. Let's change it during Advent. These people in this room with you, the apostolic prayer says, let's pray that God makes your love for those people explode. And your overcharged heart, your wearied heart, your worn out heart that's been torn down either by excess or anxiety, that heart will be established in holiness and blameless at the coming of the Lord. The Didache, which you've heard about if you've been at Sanctuary for a while, possibly written before 1 Thessalonians was written. One of the earliest extant Christian documents we have. Listen to this from the Didache. Be watchful for your life. Do not let your lamps be extinguished or your robes be loosed, but be prepared. For you do not know the hour when our Lord is coming. Gather together frequently, seeking what is appropriate for your souls. Look at this. Since a lifetime of faith will be of no advantage to you unless you prove perfect or complete or mature at the very end. My prayer for Advent this year is that we will find the courage we need to take a fearless inventory of our hearts. That if our hearts, our hearts which are being overcharged by the abundance of our blessings or our anxieties, that we'll repent of that, we'll let go of that. Stop trying to secure our own futures. My prayer is that Jesus will not be unexpected among us because we're distracted that the Lord will make us increase and abound in our love for one another so that rather than having overcharged hearts, we'd be established in holiness. I believe God can do it. I believe we can walk through this Advent season and the Holy Spirit can transform us. We can walk through this Advent season and we can exhibit a sort of alien holiness in the earth when everybody is suffering under the weight of the false pressure that our culture puts on us. We can walk in freedom and lightness of soul because our hearts are established, blameless in holiness. Let's pray. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, 
when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.